Why, hello there. Welcome back to a new episode of the Liberators Network podcast. I'm Christian Verwijs, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about how to create better work agreements with your team. I will be exploring the science behind work agreements and how they can create high-performing teams. I will also give you five practical areas to focus on. So I think today's episode is a nice mix between practice and theory. Now, this is episode 81 of our podcast. We already have quite a lot of them. Uh, If you haven't listened to our podcast before, there is a whole catalog of episodes to check out if you like this one. Just know that if you like our podcast, we're always happy with more patrons. Right now we have about 700 people who are supporting this show and all the other content that we create for the Agile community. You can go to patreon.com slash liberators to find out how to do this and also to see the many nice benefits that you get in return for your support. Um, If you can't pay or if you don't have the money for it, no problem at all. We're always happy with whatever support you can give us. If you like our podcast, you can also just give it a nice review or share it on LinkedIn or or make it easy for other people to also find out. Let's dive into the meat of today's episode. Enjoy! Today's episode is called How to Create Better Work Agreements for Your Team. The inspiration for this episode happened while I was taking a walk with my partner Lisanne. We were walking to a grassy field and there were flocks of geese flying overhead. One of those flocks was particularly noisy. It was a big group of geese in a very messy V formation. We actually laughed at it for a while because the amount of noise that this flock created was just insane. It all looked very chaotic and and ineffective. But a few minutes later there was another flock that flew overhead. It was actually the same number of birds roughly but their formation was much tighter. And surprisingly, there was hardly any communication going on. Except for a few gags here and there, the flock just effortlessly flew into the distance. Over time, I've begun to realize that this is something that you can see happening with teams also. Some teams are very noisy, but others are not. I used to believe that noise was a good sign and I actively tested teams for it. Whenever I would enter a team space, I would consider noise a good sign. I thought that it showed that people were communicating and coordinating. But the more I've worked with teams and as part of teams, the more I've begun to question if this is really such a good sign. The noise may also reflect something else, which is a lack of work agreements and shared mental models. And that brings me to a question. Do you have a team manifest or a team contract? Or do you have a list of work agreements on how you will work together as a team? If you don't have one, or when it's mostly in your head, I would recommend you take the time to set one up with your team. Because work agreements are basically team agreed expectations on how you will behave, interact and deal with certain scenarios. This is really important, but I will use this episode to explain why. I also know that not everybody sees the value of work agreements. Some find the whole process of creating them childish or a waste of time. And yeah, there is some truth to that. Not all work agreements are useful or helpful. And I have to admit that I've been guilty of facilitating work agreement sessions that were not very effective either. So how do you make proper work agreements? What should those agreements focus on and how can you capture them well? 
I want to use today's episode to share some of the experience we had, Barry and I, in our work with teams. I will also include a lot of insights from scientific research, as there is much to learn about this in terms of what makes teams effective and what may actually be signs of effective teamwork. I think there are quite a bit of surprising insights in this episode, along with the fact that noisy teams may not necessarily be a good thing. High-performing teams and coordination. The primary reason why many organizations work with teams is because they believe that people are more effective when they work together instead of apart. This is particularly true for complex work, which probably comes as no surprise. Scientific research provides strong evidence to support this belief, but not all teams are equal, and certainly not all teams are high-performing. Much of the research that investigates why some teams are better and more effective than others has focused on something called implicit coordination. This term was coined by Kleinman and Servati in 1998. Implicit coordination is the ability of team members to act together in concert without explicit coordination. Implicit coordination is a proactive style of communication where members anticipate what others will need from them. In fact, a lot of implicit coordination happens without any overt communication at all. So this is actually quite different from explicit coordination which is a very reactive style that happens in response to requests or commands. You can notice explicit coordination through questions like, what should I do? Or how can I help? Or requests like, can you do this? Can you take care of this? In fact, when researchers compare high-performing teams with low-performing teams, they consistently find that high-performing teams communicate less. This effect has been observed with flight crews by Orasana in 1990, in nuclear, nuclear plant control crews by Valar Gupta and Guillaume Battista in 2004, but also in work teams by Urban and his colleagues in 1995. This is not because team members have developed telepathy or anything, but they've learned so well what is expected of each other that they don't need to communicate explicitly about those things anymore. This basically keeps a lot of their bandwidth open for problem solving, for critical communication, and for maintaining focus. Now, scientists often call this shared understanding that develops in teams and that enables implicit coordination as team cognition. Team cognition has been linked to higher performance and motivation, for example, by a study in Mathieu and his colleagues in 2000. But it's been also been linked to increased effectiveness by Kearney, Gebert and Volpel in 2009. We actually know that team cognition alone explains quite a large amount of variance, about 20% in the effectiveness of teams, which is something that the Church and Mesmer Magnus reported based on a meta-analysis in 2010. Now, all the references that I'm listing, you can find them in the show notes if you want to read more. But I think the summary of this is that team cognition is an important contributor to what makes teams effective. You can observe implicit coordination in scrum teams when you look at how work moves across a scrum board or on and off the sprint backlog. You can also see that work when one developer offers to pair up with another developer because a task is difficult or people need help. 
You can also see it when a product owner already prepares test cases for a complex item without necessarily being asked to do so by the team. Or when a team member starts testing a deployment as another developer runs it. The more these kinds of things start happening, this sort of implicit coordination of tasks, the more effective your team probably is. Now this research helps us understand why work agreements are so helpful. Teams tend to develop stronger team cognition when they work together for a longer period of time. At least this is what the Church and Mesmer Magnus found in 2010 based on a, an analysis of over 20 different studies. And this makes sense. The more you work with the same people, the more likely you are to anticipate their needs and as well as your own. So work agreements, team manifestos and team contracts can help you fast track some of that understanding by talking openly and specifically about how you will work together. This is also why the Scrum framework includes the definition of done. It is basically a subset of work agreements that specifically answer the question, how will our team ensure that we deliver high quality increments to our stakeholders every sprint? Once that definition is clearly ingrained in the minds of the members, there is no need and less need to constantly talk about it, make decisions about it, and coordinate work to assure that it happens. What should work agreements address? So while work agreements are useful to create high-performing teams, it's also true that not all agreements are useful. Which areas of coordination are most important? Fortunately, the science can also help us here, and I will cover five areas that are probably most relevant to high performance and where you should probably create work agreements for. But these are not, not necessarily all the areas, just good starting points. The first area to focus on in your work agreements is how to coordinate the work as it flows from member to member. Buchi Babu and her colleagues performed an experiment in 2016 with 13 teams. They found the strongest effect on performance when team members announced their next goal, like, I just completed this task on the sprint backlog, and now I will start work on this other task on the sprint backlog. And obviously they should mention what the actual task is. This is a great opportunity for others to synchronize their work. This communication doesn't need to be verbal. It may also be it may also suffice to move an item on the scrum board or Kanban board to done or ready for review. Although a verbal statement is probably clearer for teams where the scrum board isn't visible all the time. There's actually another episode we recorded about this called stick magic action, which this is a good example of, which uh, I will put in the show notes if you're interested to learn more about this. Now, in terms of work agreements, we've always found the following sentences to be most useful to create work agreements in this particular area. The first one is, when you start on a new item, announce this by whatever action makes sense. And the second sentence is, when you are stuck on an item, announce this by, and then an action that makes sense. These two questions are useful with your team to create work agreements that focus on the coordination of the flow of work from member to member. Let's move to the next area. Another important area is how to coordinate the use of skills. And this ties closely into research on team cognition and cross-functionality. I already mentioned them a couple of times, but the Church and Masmer Magnus 
analyzed over uh, 85 different studies in 2010, and they found that teams benefit greatly from knowing the skills of each of their members, but also to know how to effectively combine those skills for the tasks at hand. This actually was far more important than distributing those skills evenly among members. It's really important what's happening in this, in this insight because it shows us that cross-functionality does not mean that everyone in the team should be able to do everything. It shows instead that it's more important that you have diverse skills and that's okay, but that you know as a team how to actually put those skills together effectively to complete your work together. We found that the creation of a skill matrix is a really good starting point to identify potential work agreements in this area. A skill matrix basically shows you the different skills on the vertical axes and on the horizontal axes you see the names of the team members. And in each of the cells that you then have, you can specify the, the skill level of a particular team member with a skill. So you can create a skill matrix like this and make sure that all the team members are in there, which gives you a good overview of how skills are distributed. Once you have a skill matrix, every member can then talk about what they normally need from other team members to perform a skill effectively. For example, a developer may want to spend more time with their designer before they start implementation on UI-oriented items. Or you may find that a tester wants to pair up with a developer when they are testing items. Note that we're using functional job titles here for clarity. Not all companies use them, and the Scrum Guide only talks about developers, but in the day-to-day -day experience of teams, it makes sense to talk about a developer, a designer, and a tester. And it's actually okay. You have different skill sets, and that's okay. It's about how you put them together. Now, the process of creating a skill matrix and having an open and honest conversation about the skills of, and what each of the members needs from each other is probably more important than the actual skill matrix and work agreements that come out of it. So we wouldn't recommend capturing member-specific work agreements, for example, that Tim the developer always needs a design from Jill the designer. Instead, it may be more useful to identify more high-level work agreements that concern the use of skills. And there are two sentences that we always use. The first one is, when you notice that we're stuck as a team, and then there is an action. And the second sentence is, when we discover that we miss a certain skill, we, and then there is an action. So that's the second area, how to coordinate the use of skills. Let's move on to how to coordinate the navigation of conflict, because that's another important area. We know from research with teams that even very light, moderate conflict has a negative effect on team productivity. This is clearly shown by studies by De Dreux and Weingart in 2003 and also later, by the way. Each person has their own style of responding to conflict. Some people avoid it, some always yield, some always force their will or frequently, and other people see compromises or a solution where everyone wins. This is actually a more detailed study by Pruitt and Rubin from 1968. That's really interesting. It's called the Dual Concern Model of Conflict. And you can find more about it on the internet. Um, I'll also put a link to it in the show notes. In any case, teams benefit from knowing their different styles, as well as how to understand and navigate team-level conflict. For example, 
What may feel like a lively debate for one member in the team can be very anxiety-inducing for another person. It's important to know that and to be aware of this and be sensitive to it. We've always found the following sentences useful to complete work agreements in this area. The first sentence is, when we face a seemingly unresolvable conflict in our team, we... And then there is an action that makes sense. For example, teams could empower their scrum master to take action there, or to find an outside mediator, or maybe even to dissolve the team. This is obviously a very worst case scenario, but it's always important specifically to have work agreements for those worst case scenarios also. The second sentence that we find helpful is, when a conflict starts to escalate in our team, we, and then there is some action. For example, teams could agree on a timeout or a group conversation, or they could ask for help from outside, maybe a coach or someone from human resources. I hate that term by the way, but well, HR makes sense to a lot of people. You can ask people from HR to help. And then there's the third sentence and the final one. When someone starts to feel uncomfortable or anxious in an argument, we, and then there is some action, maybe a timeout also, or, or some other uh, action that makes sense. So that gives us insights on how to coordinate the navigation of conflict and how to create work agreements that help in this particular area. Let's move to the fourth area, which has to do with psychological safety. This is a really important area also. Psychological safety is, and I'm quoting here, a shared belief held by members of a team that the team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. This is how Amy Edmondson defined it in 1999 in her study that repopularized psychological safety. Many studies have found that psychological safety has a positive influence on team effectiveness. For example, Edmondson 2014 shows this clearly. But also our own research with data from 2000 scrum teams shows that um, psychological safety is a very strong predictor of team effectiveness. Members can create a climate of psychological safety by listening to other viewpoints, by encouraging feedback and also admitting mistakes. Much of this behavior can be discussed and captured in work agreements. There are many ways to do this, but we've always found the following sentences useful to complete for work agreements in this area. The first sentence is, we invite feedback by some action and honor the giver by some action, even though we are not required to agree. So basically we're inviting teams here to think about how they should invite feedback from each other, maybe by creating a pull request or putting uh, the item on the scrum board in a column that says feedback or review needed. Um, and we also ask teams to clarify how they want to honor the feedback giver, because giving feedback is hard and receiving feedback is also very hard. So it's important to think about how to deal with that. The second sentence is, we encourage each other to admit mistakes by, and then there's some action. Maybe you can celebrate a mistake that's admitted or um, have a drink after at the end of the day to, to sort of allow people to admit the mistake and then drink, have a nice drink together and, and forget about it. That's a way to deal with this. So that was how to coordinate psychological safety through work agreements. Let's move to the final area, which is how to coordinate work pressure and stress. 
It's really important to talk with your team about how to coordinate work pressure, how to coordinate stress and the negative consequences of it. Many studies have shown that stress developers make more mistakes. For example, a study by Furuyama, Arai and Lioi from 1969 and Sonantag and his colleagues from 1994 show this clearly. High stress environments are more likely to burn members out, which is also shown by Sonantag and his colleagues. We've always found the following sentences useful to complete for work agreements in this area. The first one is, we encourage each other to maintain a sustainable pace by, and then there's some action. And the second sentence is, when someone in our team experiences a lot of stress, we, and then there's an action. For example, you could do a timeout and collaborate on how to proceed, or you can use pair or mob, mob programming to share the pressure. So what does all this mean in summary? The five areas that we presented are not meant to be exhaustive, but they are prevalent in research around team effectiveness. So they're a good start if you're looking for evidence-based recommendations on what to include in your work agreements. You can also include areas about learning and improvement, about diversity and inclusiveness and personal growth. But here too, it's probably better to start with a minimal set of work agreements that you evolve as a team over time rather than start with an exhaustive list that nobody remembers. It's really important to be concise and to start with what you absolutely need in essence. Now, how, how should you actually capture those work agreements? There are many ways to capture work agreements and the go-to solution for most teams is to put them on a flip and put that flip in the team room somewhere on the wall or, or easily visible. But you can also use a virtual alternative like Mural or, or Miro or something like that. These are all fine strategies. However, the most important place to capture work agreements is in the brains of team members. A poster with wonderful work agreements and nice visualizations has no value when members are not involved in their creation. They're also not useful when they didn't discuss them and when, when they don't refer to it in their day-to-day -day practice. We've seen many examples where teams spent a whole day or morning to create a team contract and then never look at it again. It makes sense that people start seeing that as a waste of time. Instead, the better way to make work agreements come alive and for people to better remember them is to use engaging ways to create them. And I'm sure you see where this is going, but we think liberating structures are really useful for this. Liberating structures give a voice to everyone in a group and they use very simple structures to allow every person to give their perspective and then build on that together as a group. A good example of this is that you can first share experiences with work agreements and high performing teams with a liberating structure called one Two for all. If you want to learn how to actually do this, there is a link in the show notes. Once you've shared these experiences with work agreements, you can use a liberating structure called 2510 crowdsourcing to first identify a broad set of work agreements and then use another liberating structure called MinSpecs to narrow it down to the essentials. We've also had great experiences with the creation of team posters that include work agreements, the team name and other characteristics, for example, a mascot. The shared activity of creating this poster is fun and something memorable, and you can leave the poster in the team room and refer to it in your day-to-day -day work. 
Is there a cautionary tale for fluid teaming in all this? So how does all this work for fluid teams? Or teams that are otherwise subjected to frequent changes in their composition? In those situations where team members frequently have to work with new members, it is not surprising that much more effort will need to be made to continuously develop, refresh and refine work agreements and shared mental models. In fact, the uh, scientists Bush and Chu reviewed research on fluid teams in 2011 and they concluded that for this reason, fluid teams may never have the same potential for high performance as more stable teams. Thus, the evidence and the theoretical models we have to understand why some teams perform better than others strongly prefer team stability over team fluidity. There's actually a podcast episode coming up about this, so keep Keep an eye on, uh, on, on the platform that you're listening on. There's also a blog post we wrote about this. I'll put the link in the show notes. You can read this if you're interested to learn more about the science around team stability and fluidity. Let's move to the closing words. We use today's episode to dive deep into work agreements and how they can drive teams to become high performing. Through scientific research, and the many studies that have been done, we know that teams that become high-performing have developed a strong understanding of what each member of the team needs. This allows members to anticipate and prepare the right information ahead of time, rather than having to explicitly coordinate it. This kind of implicit coordination is one factor that distinguishes high from low-performing teams. And you can fast-track this process with good work agreements. We covered five areas that you should probably make work agreements for. Each of these areas contribute to team effectiveness, and we've shown how the science explains how that's the case. The first area is that you need to coordinate the flow of work. The second is that you need to coordinate the use of skills. The third is the coordination of navigation of conflict. Then we have the coordination of psychological safety. And finally, we have the coordination of work pressure and stress. Having said all this, it's important to know that with the proper work agreements, your team is almost certainly better able to act together as a team, much like the geese in the introduction, without a lot of noise. Good luck, enjoy! And that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you learned something new about work agreements, and I also hope that you were just as surprised as I was that noisy teams may not necessarily be a good sign. I hope this episode gave you a lot of practical ideas on what you can do with your team. Like we said in the introduction, if you liked today's episode, please share it on LinkedIn or other platforms that you're listening on so that other people can also learn about this podcast. You can also support us at patreon.com liberators. It's always a great way to help us create more content like this. But having said all this, I want to thank you for listening and I hope to see you again for our next episode. Take care. Bye-bye.